Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we discuss 1980s Flash Gordon. Sebastian and I am here with Jennifer. Hello. And Troy. Hey. Troy, you sound a little more excited this podcast than you did last <laughs> podcast when I introduced you. I'm excited any podcast where we are not talking about Waterworld. You're right. We are not talking about Waterworld. We are talking about Flash Gordon, the 1980 adaptation of the Alex Raymond comic strip and sort of a remake of sorts of the 1930s and 40s serials. Now, um, this movie is produced by Dino De Laurentiis. And it's interesting, Troy, I think we've discussed three Dino De Laurentiis films with you. Yeah. Two King Kongs. And Dune. So that's four. This is the fourth. The, what's the other one? Oh, did he not do King Kong Lives? He did. We didn't do both King Kongs. Oh, for, I keep I keep thinking that because we discussed King Kong Lives and also talked a lot about King Kong. Yes. So yeah. I get that confused. Okay. So King Kong Lives, Dune. Yes. And this would be the third Dino movie. We just love talking Dino with you. So he the, is a famous Italian producer, as we've discussed in other podcasts, and he had produced some other comic book adaptations in the late 60s, Danger, Diabolic, and Barbarella, which are both really fun movies, and I recommend you watch them. So he had wanted to do Flash Gordon since around that time. And then George Lucas came around in the early 70s and wanted to direct Flash Gordon, but Dino wouldn't let him. And so George went off and did his own space opera called Star Wars. <laughs> so that worked out pretty well for him. But really interestingly about this movie is that it was originally intended to be directed by Federico Fellini, the famous Italian director of art films. And you can tell 
in the production design. And in fact, there's a character named Fellini in reference to him. But, you know, Federico decided to do loftier things, I guess. And then Nicholas Rogue came in. So he almost directed this. But then he went off to do something else. And then it ended up being directed by British director Mike Hodges. And it was written by Lorenzo Semple Jr., who is a guy who had a hand in the remake of the uh, King Kong, the 76 King Kong. And he also helped to develop the Batman 60s TV show, which this also has definite uh, vibes from. So Mm -hmm. you can kind of see the genesis of where we get 1980s Flash Gordon from all these different elements. Now, this movie was a big deal for me as a kid. It came out in 1980. I was 10 years old, and I remember seeing this in the theater with a bunch of friends. I thought it was for my own birthday, but I looked at the dates when it came out, and it must—it was not my birthday. It must have been somebody else's. But me and a bunch of friends went to see it. We had a good time. We loved Star Wars. This was going to be the next Star Wars. Everybody was expecting this to be Star Wars. But it was not. Now, Troy, what are your earliest memories of the 1980 Flash Gordon? I was really excited about this movie. I remember the uh, the video box with that awesome poster on it. I'm trying to remember the uh, the name of the poster designer, but he's the same guy that did Raiders of the Lost Ark. Amsel. Drew Struson? No, not Drew Struson. His, his name's... Um, Ansel. Yeah, yeah, I know. Amsel. Some Richard Amsel or something like that, but... But yeah, I was super excited about this. And then uh, we saw it on video when it came out on video. Beta. Nice. Because my dad was a beta man, so we had a beta (laughs) machine. So definitely saw this on beta. And I thought it was incredible. This this movie blew my mind. And it was definitely, I, I didn't quite register with the campiness of it. Or the sexuality yeah. in it because I was just too young. You know, t- my parents were just thinking this was like a, you know, just a, another Star Wars type of movie. Uh, they definitely did were not on board with this at all. <laughs> uh-huh. But uh, yeah, the colors. It was like right away for me. This opened up all kinds of ideas and and gateways uh, to the idea that you could. You didn't have to try to make space look anything based in reality, that this was definitely like creative choices and artistic visions. And if anything, it just inspired me. Those those ink drops into the the water tanks for the clouds made me want to do that. Like I thought this is not only this, this just this look amazing, but I could do that. Like I can go take my fish tank and pour a bunch of ink in it. (laughs) <laughs> and and make those skies for my fish right <laughs> you know so and and it looked accessible there was something accessible but just totally awesome about it jen what is your f- earliest memories of flash gordon the movie my earliest memories uh, were seeing it on hbo it feel like it was on hbo quite often um i did not have any i was you know, I'm too young to have any sort of excitement about this film coming out. And I didn't, you know, know about the comic or anything, but I definitely saw it a lot on HBO and I liked it. I liked it. It was something that I would watch whenever it was on. Cause that's how you watched things back then. It was what, whatever was on you watched, which is, I was thinking about this in particular with this film, had I been growing up 
now where things are so curated, we're able to curate things for individuals so much, there's probably a lot of things I wouldn't have seen. And I probably wouldn't have sought this out, to be honest, because, you know, I mean, I did like Star Wars quite a bit, but I don't I don't know if I would have sought out Flash Gordon to watch. But nevertheless, I did. And because uh, it was on and I liked it. And uh, yeah, I just thought it was really cool. I thought the the outfits were amazing. I thought the girls were really pretty. Even at a young age, I knew like this, it felt like I was kind of watching something a little naughty because there's like, you know, <laughs> a lot of like, I'm wondering, was the comic this sexualized too? No, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. This was all just dialing it up for the the big screen the comic was like a sunday strip kind of thing so it was going out in the newspaper so it was definitely not at all racy like it's not a european comic like some of the other sci-fi stuff we talked about most people knew it from being a daily comic and from the serials in the 30s which starred an actor named buster crab who was sort of like an athlete who'd become an actor so that was where it was in pop culture before this movie. And that is the show that inspired Lucas. Like he just basically wanted to make more of that. Right. He wanted to do like serial style storytelling. And it ended up being something that he brought to both Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark in Indiana Jones, because those are sort of structured like serialized, you know, storytelling. And also the, the opening text crawl is that from flash gordon or from buck rogers it's from one of those two shows okay and when i saw this in the theater with my friends i also really enjoyed it and i liked all the sort of strange special effects like you were talking about but i do remember specifically a sort of early cynicism among 10 year old boys where we were (laughs) like well that was no star wars you know (laughs) its intention to live up to star wars was not met by myself and my 10 year old boyfriends we were all like eh it's not star wars but i always did kind of like it and of course i've come back to it again and again over the years because it's so much fun to watch it's also a film that you can watch at these different age levels and you kind of get different things out of it as you as you grow up. So yeah. like I didn't like I said, I didn't I didn't get the camp or the sexuality at all when I was a kid. And I, I kind of loved the the rock. I love the Queen soundtrack. Yeah, that grew on me even more as I started getting it because I saw this when I was nine. And then once I really started getting into music for me, Queen basically was the guys that did Flash Gordon and Highlander. Right. <laughs> right. That was Queen for me. And but then, you know, as an adult looking at Flash Gordon, I can t- I totally appreciate that this was intentionally campy. Yeah. That was the, like it set out to to have this style and fully intended to do that deliberately. And that was probably a little confusing as a kid, but I just like I said I'd never seen anything else like that. You know, the garishness and the the eroticism in this is is still kind of a holdover from Barbarella. Mm-hmm. You know, so Dino De Laurentiis had produced Barbarella and Danger Diabolic. Yep. Danger Diabolic. And so I think he wanted this to be yet another one of those types of movies with overt style, garishness. Um, this has a lot of Barbarella in it. And I think, you know, he deliberately wanted this to be 
uh, tantalizing and titillating in this, the, the same way. Just one thing about Queen and Dino De, De Laurentiis, um, he had never heard of the band Queen before making the film. Mm-hmm. So the band was approached for doing the film um, in 1979, and they were the band Queen was immediately interested in doing this. Uh-huh. So their manager arranged a meeting with De Laurentiis to discuss the opportunity, and he allegedly asked, who are the Queens? <laughs> with a thick Italian accent is how yes. it was said. <laughs> That's I can hear it in my head for sure. I can't do an Italian accent, so I'm not going to try. But No, I'm not going to either, but I, I, I hear it. I can hear it. So getting into the movie, starting off, we start off with Queen, that awesome, amazing uh, Flash uh, opening song, the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun Flash. And uh, we see the switchboard and our villain Ming the Merciless, who we will find is played by uh, Max von Sydow, the amazing actor. He's bombing Earth with stuff like hot hail, which I'm still not sure what hot hail is supposed to be. Is that actually a thing? It's it's hot hail. It's not, right? It's hail that is hot. (laughs) Don't touch it. I just think it's funny that he specifically has a button for something that's not a real thing. Yeah, he's got buttons for all these disasters. Yeah, hur- hurricanes and all of the, yeah, but hot hail is like the one that continues to like flash on the screen yeah. slowly and like fades out. But I mean, the first line is, Clytus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? Right. Which is just incredible to start a film <laughs> off with your villain just saying, I'm bored. Let's just mess something up. And the cool thing that's one thing I really enjoy about the opening sequence is we get the credits and we're getting all these shots of the original Alex Raymond comics interspersed with uh, Ming's switchboard. And he's a really great artist. I've, I've actually looked at some of the comics and they are really beautiful to look at. The movie captures it pretty well, I think, the, his style in a way updating it for the 70s i am kind of bummed that they're sort of squashed because i don't know they shot it in some weird aspect ratio or whatever it's a nitpick but i'm like why did they why is the image squashed on the on the (laughs) comic book frames it's a little weird but this this opening credit scene is still to this day one of my all-time favorite opening credits yeah it's pretty great yep it's so high energy and the song is incredible it's got these, you know, the titles like zooming past you with these crazy fonts. And then all the, the um, there's sort of these stuttered or like uh, onion skinned versions of these comic books sort of flying past you. Yeah. Yeah. Intercut with with <laughs> basically found footage of d- natural disasters. Yeah. Things destroying <laughs> the planet. Yeah. Some real stock footage stuff. <laughs> but it's fun. It's super fun. I, I, Troy, I'm with you. I think the opening is is one of the best. And um, yeah, it's just you get to see like every when they're, you know, giving the credits for each of the cast members. Like there's also like the characters like as comics or whatever. Yeah. So you're kind of getting an idea of who, what they're going to look like before we actually meet them. It's a total statement. This, is, this opening credits does what opening credits should do, which is it sets the tone perfectly. It says, this is what this film's going to be about. It's a comic book movie. You know, it's going to be a rock and roll space opera. So after the opening credits, we meet our Flash Gordon as played by Sam J. Jones. Now we should probably get into Sam now. So Sam is a handsome looking man, or at least he was back in this uh, era. 
His hair is dyed, sort of bleached blonde, because that was Flash Gordon's hair color in the serials and in the comics. Most of the dialogue that you hear him say in this movie has been dubbed by another actor. The actor's name is... Um, oh, I thought it was unknown. No. Okay. It is known. The man who dubbed his <laughs> voice was Peter Marinker. And the thing about this is... The voice was not dubbed because Sam Jones has a weird accent. It was not dubbed because Sam Jones didn't deliver the lines well or whatever. It's dubbed because Sam Jones walked off this movie at a certain point. He was thinking he was a big star and behaving poorly. And him and Dino hated each other. And so he basically walked off the film. I mean, I think he came back and finished what he was supposed to do but Dino hated him so much that he didn't want to bring him back to do his looping so they found a guy who sounded enough like him to go in and do I think 80 or 90 percent of the dialogue but there is some Sam Jones dialogue in the movie which I know where it is because I can tell it's a different voice on Aboria Yes. I got that in this screening too. Yeah. And his voice is very close to the guy they got. But I think the one, the funny thing is, is so not only did they get this guy to do his voice and do a close approximation of his voice, but they also really chipper up his attitude. So when, <laughs> when you hear his real line delivery, he sounds a little more sour but like the guy they got to dub him is always like, hey, Dale. Oh, golly yeah. gee. He's got a real like golly gee, like positive <laughs> attitude about him. And I think it's because Sam Jones was probably just delivering his lines a little more like eh, whatever. He was trying to be a little tough, uh, more of a tough guy. Right. When he delivered his lines. Sam Jones kept getting into fights during the filming of the movie. And at one point, he was in the hospital with a big scrape on his face. Uh -huh. And De Laurentiis himself barged into the operating room to make sure they fixed his face as to not leave a visible scar. But Jones kept causing trouble. And then at Christmas, he left for Los Angeles and never returned, as you said. And so De Laurentiis recalls that he told Mike Hodges, we'll keep going with the very best stand-in you can find. So, yeah, it was not, <laughs> Sam Jones was not. It wasn't good. And he was and he was cast. This is the last thing that was uh, really interesting is he was cast because Dino De Laurentiis's mother-in-law saw Sam Jones on an episode of The Dating Game. Oh, wow. Oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> His other only big movie before this was 10. Right. Yeah. yeah. So he was he was a beefcake in this previous movie uh, next to Bo Derek. But also, I don't know if, um, you know, he definitely was not invited back to do his ADR, uh, which is like just a normal thing. Also, because I think this was more like an Italian production. That's kind of how Italian movies are really done. Right. Even in the 80s, they would still just kind of dub over every all everybody's lines in the end anyways. This wasn't actually shot in Italy. I thought it might have been. I thought it might have been shot in Cinerenta or whatever that Italian studio where they do, did a lot of big Italian mm -hmm. productions, but it wasn't. It was shot in London. But it feel, it's got that feel. It definitely does, yes. When he wanted Fellini to direct it, there was a couple of choices that, that stayed on, like the production designer was, was a Fellini. He had worked with Fellini before. Right. So that's why it sort of has that Italian feel to it kind of hovering in the background. Yeah. 
What I was going to say about Sam Day, Jay Jones is I'm not sure if this, I think this might've been after they had had their squabble and then he didn't come back for his lines. But then Sam J. Jones was contracted to do any sequels that would have been made from this. Right. There wasn't even any talk about doing the sequels as of yet and probably never had been, but he sued Dino De Laurentiis for not being in any sequels. Right. After that, which wow. which is a surefire way to just kill your career. It's largely understood that this killed Sam J. Jones's career. I don't know if that's really true. I think he's probably a pretty bad actor and probably could have done that on his own. But there is a whole documentary about Sam J. Jones and how he screwed up his life. Life after Flash. So if you love this movie or are interested to know what became of the lead, uh, check out Life After Flash. It's pretty interesting. He is beautiful in this movie. He's very handsome. He looks incredible. Yeah. Like he looks like an angel mm -hmm. in a painting. He has that sort of classic handsome man look. Yeah. He was also, um, I guess, centerfold for Playgirl. Oh, right. Yep. What? Yep. And then also, this is kind of cool because I guess he's like 6'3". He's a, a super tall dude. So he um, did, he choreographed and did most of his own stunts, which is interesting. That's for cool. Because this, this is a very physical role. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of fighting and I mean, that's, I mean, the whole scene, you know, where he's, he's doing, we'll get into it, but you know, the football and all of that. I mean, that's, that's, there's some physical stuff going on for sure. Well, the character is specifically a New York Jets football player. So, you know, it's sort of built into the character. And that's true of the original comic and the original serial. I don't know if he was a football player specifically, but he was an athlete. I know that. He was a, a polo player. A polo player. Yeah. <laughs> Which they were like, that doesn't That's really not going to work. work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That would have been pretty awesome if he remained a polo player. Yeah. But I actually watched um, some of the serial. They have a couple of um, episodes on the Blu-ray that I have. And the movie's pretty close. Like, it's the first serial is very similar to the first section of this movie. So they weren't messing around in terms of the story. They pretty much stuck to kind of what the serial does. So, yeah, we meet our Flash Gordon. And he's got this cool, like, shirt that's got his name on it. And it just says Flash. And he gets into this tiny little plane, which would terrify me. And I would never fly in. <laughs> It's like basically got just like two seats in it and he gets in there and he gets in with travel agent Dale Arden, which I don't understand why travel agent Dale Arden is getting in a plane with the football player. Like it's a chartered flight that should be incredibly expensive. Right. Like she's a travel agent. Maybe she had a hookup because she's the travel agent. Maybe. Maybe she had a hookup for this private plane. Who knows? Yeah. She wanted to get in there with Flash. She is played by Melody Anderson, who is an actress of some note. If you watched TV in the 70s and 80s, she would show up and stuff. She was in Battlestar Galactica, for instance, before this. So she was a face that you would recognize if you watched TV in that era. I, I like her. I think she's super cute. She's also had a minor role on Dallas. Ah, excellent. So they kind of have their meet cute. They're in the plane and the plane is getting bopped around by Ming's bad weather patterns. But Flash is being a real gentleman and holding her hand and stuff. But while they're up in the air, this meteor that looks like Ming the Merciless or something comes and smashes right into the cockpit and takes the pilots away. So Flash <laughs> has got to crash land the plane 
and he crash lands it into the greenhouse owned by Dr. Hans Zarkoff, who is played by Topol of Fiddler on the Roof fame. I really enjoy Topol in this movie. I think he brings a fun energy. When we meet him, he's totally like kind of crazy pants. He wants to go up in this spaceship that he's made because he's convinced that they're being attacked by some alien force, which he's right, but nobody <laughs> believes him. They've laughed at him at the university and he's trying to get his assistant. Um, what's his assistant's name? Mongo Munson. 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 Yeah. yeah. Thank you. He's holding a fucking revolver on his assistant, like insisting that he takes a spaceship into space with him. But uh, Munson isn't having it. This is like the one of the first miniatures that we see with set pieces. And it's so elaborate right away that you, you get this feel that this movie's going to be really big because this is just the introductory set piece where they're They've got their laboratory and they've got it's like you said, it's in a greenhouse and there's a whole section where they have all these plants growing everywhere. It doesn't look like your typical science headquarters no. at all. And it's just so over the top and elaborate um, and weird. And like you mentioned, where Ming, this meteor Ming shape busts in through this this airplane and we're already getting these these weird inky cloud formations happening yeah. and the hot hail going, all this stuff is happening. And I remember when I was a kid just thinking, okay, I'm on board for this. It was silly, but somehow you're on this roller coaster and you either buckle up and go with it or, or you're not into it at all. You know, within the first 10 minutes of this movie, if it's going to be for you or not, like if you're like, yeah. I'm okay with the scientists working in a hothouse or whatever they're doing, then you're good. And I was thinking about it. Now, if they made this movie, you're right. Like, Arkoff, Zarkoff is, what is his name? Zarkoff. Zarkoff. Yeah. I always get confused with the producer, Ark Samuel Z. Arkoff. Z. <laughs> but, like, if it was today, he'd have, like, a lab in, like, a regular place. You know what I mean? Like, in the, in yeah. the 80s and 90s, they would set these like scientist labs would be somewhere crazy and there'd be, you know what I mean? There'd be something interesting about it. But he looks like the, the doctor in the swamp thing. Right. And they're, they're like sleeping in these cots and in their clothes. Like they're, yeah. they're already kind of <laughs> setting these characters up to be these society dropouts that are dysfunctional. And yeah, it's, it's just, he's got all these computers and reel to reel tapes everywhere. And you're getting all this exposition off these news reports that are happening. But this giant missile pop in the in the middle of the room, like this rocket that's ready to right. launch off into space. Yeah. Dead yeah. into space. And it's all candy colored and looks like it belongs at the state fair. It's <laughs> awesome. Yes. Yes. But yeah, so Flash and Dale crash into this lab. This time I noticed like poor Munson is like running away, but then the plane starts to crash into the lab and then Munson runs back into the lab and like Zarkov's like, you came back or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you just see Munson kind of dive out of the way, but the plane just comes careening in and then comes to a stop. And then like Flash and Dale get out and they're and like, they're like, oh, hi. And Zarkov's like, oh, you probably want to use the phone or whatever. We never find out what happened to Munson. Like, that. did he get like <laughs> creamed? Poor Munson. I think he died and no one cared. I think it's safe to say he, he saw his opportunity to to get out. But I like the idea that he just got <laughs> squished by the by Flash's plane. Seb actually said out loud, he was like, what happened to Munson? Did he just 
is he dead? And I was like, oh, yeah, I think that the plane just ran him over. Yeah. I think you're the only viewer that ever was concerned about Munson. No, there's a whole Munson fan group on uh, TikTok. <laughs> what? You haven't seen what? hashtag what happened to Munson? Seriously? This- <laughs> no. Not yet. I meant to say Reddit because that would be more <laughs> feasible. That would be more. <laughs> Whatever the kids are doing. People looping his lines <laughs> and acting out Munson's role. <laughs> so, yeah, Zarkov uh, convinces Flash and Dale at gunpoint, I guess, to get in the rocket and go into space with him because he needs somebody to work one of the like controls, which is like a pedal. So he gets them to go in and they get in the rocket and they shoot off into space and we get this really cool like sequence where they're floating in space and we get this cool like dreamy music with I think some guitar work by uh, Brian May of Queen. I'm not sure. The music, although Queen does do a lot of the music, they don't do all of it. They kind of get credit for it, but there is a lot of music that was done by another composer and, and it's got sort of a rock feel so it blends in with the other stuff, but it's not all Queen. I'm not sure exactly which pieces are Queen. I mean, you know some of them because they're the ones that are like, dan, 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 dan. like the big bombastic <laughs> stuff is Queen, but the quieter stuff I think is another guy. It's mostly uh, Brian May did the music for it and then the rest of the band, like he, Brian May composed all that stuff and then the rest of the band performed it. Howard Blake is the other composer. I don't know how much he did. I don't know who did what. Back in those days, they didn't get very specific about Howard these Blake things. did all the symphonic stuff. The, the famous Flash theme song is, is from Brian May. Right. In which the band Queen performed all of that music. But what's really cool during this scene with this music is we're really getting that sort of ink space effects that you were talking about, Troy. In the sea of fire. Oh, yeah, it's great. At one point, they pass through something. You see like the liquid sort of retracting behind them. It's really cool. Yeah, it's a great, great scene. You could take drugs and look at this on a loop and probably get a lot out of it just for hours. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's great because they they launch up into space kind of pass out and immediately there's like planets everywhere they sort of exit our galaxy instantaneously and there's suddenly an abundance of planets surrounding them but uh yeah they're flying through this inky space uh and you're getting this incredible psychedelic colors with yellows and oranges and and then you know ming's he's got these like viewers that are are starting to notice this capsule entering their their system uh these guys wearing these um goggles with just sort of like waveforms painted on the front of them i was thinking that if mongo was real troy you'd be one of those guys like you could be one of the viewers what that's where i see you fitting into they're robots (laughs) they're just robots sitting and staring at their screens is that that's what you think of me? I just think that would be a good job for you. I'm all I'm saying is I think that would be a good job for you if Mongo was a thing. Because I don't have any hair. That's probably well, why. and you wear glasses. Looks like Troy, like those guys that wear glasses and just stare at their computers all day. Flash Gordon approaching. I just think this would be a good gig for you if Ming ever right. if Ming ever takes over. I'm gonna show that scene to my wife and be like, "Is this what you think of me?" <laughs> Hey, look, I'd probably be the like little person that the princess is dragging around. Yeah. Fellini or as pet. 
<laughs> I wish I was Aura's pet. It'd be way more fun than being one of those guys that stares at their computers. I don't know. I don't know about that. Isn't her pet named Fellini? Yes. Isn't that the rabbit? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. He's played by Deep Roy, who is a famous little okay. person who still works today. Cool. He's an Indian little person. So the uh, rocket crash lands on the planet Mongo, which is where Ming lives, and they are captured by these, like, troopers, these weird-looking troopers. Some of them have, like, gold masks. Some of them look like they have, like, uh, gas masks on. The one that captures them can, like, launch their hands, like, via laser tether and sort of grab them. Mm -hmm. And so our heroes are brought into the court of Ming the Merciless. Now... As you can probably tell by the name Ming, that this character was created at a time when attitudes towards Asian cultures were a little, uh, shall we say, uh, rough. It was around World War II. We weren't really friends with Japan. A lot of comic book characters around this time are sort of um, anti-Asian. And Ming definitely was sort of a Fu Manchu type of character in his original conception. In fairness to this movie, I think they're moving away from that by having Max von Sydow play him, who is a Swedish actor. But it, there's still a little of that sort of racist um, Asian stereotyping lingering there in his depiction, even though he's from outer space. <laughs> he's not supposed to be literally an asian person it's still coming from negative stereotypes they definitely moved away from the original com apparently the original comic strip had tons of orientalism in it and was quite derogatory yeah. you know especially making the main villain an asian with it with a little beard and you know then the serial the uh the 1930s serial moved a little bit even further away from it and then by this film it pretty much just held on to influential styles. I wouldn't say it's there's anything real derogatory towards any. It's problematic enough that if they redid this movie, he would have to yes. be changed almost entirely. That's what I had the feeling today when I was watching it. It was I was kind of like, is this okay? <laughs> is this okay now? You know what I mean? No, like I didn't. It's not okay. I didn't now. think it was okay. I was like, uh, I don't think this is okay now, but. Definitely not. I'm glad that I mean at least it it improved from where it was, and like you said, if it if it was to be remade, it would you know go in a different direction for sure. Yeah, I think his name Ming and his costume are you know references to of course they're references to Asian culture, but he's not running around with a huge accent and no no accents at all yeah he does have some eye makeup on that's a little suggestive of you know asian eye shapes but it's not that bad it's not super obvious no the um thing i wanted to mention that was in the trivia about um his costume the ming costume it weighed over 70 pounds so he could only Damn. he could only stand in it for like yeah. a few minutes at a time. Right. Seventy pounds. I mean, I believe it. That's crazy. I mean, the the costumes are incredible. There's a um, section in Life After Flash where Sam J. Jones is talking about how Max von Sydow came on just to do his uh, his delivery dialogue where the camera was on Sam, and Max von Sydow came dressed fully in that that costume without even being on camera just to deliver lines uh -huh. sides because he 
he expected everybody to be in character no matter what. Wow. And they were like, why are you wearing that thing? You don't have to wear that thing. <laughs> he really commits to the role. Oh, my God. I mean, this was, for the longest time, Max von Sydow was Ming the Merciless. I had no idea that he had this prior history of being this Swedish, this yeah. heralded Swedish actor in Bergman <laughs> yeah. films. Like, to me, he was just Max von Sydow until I saw him in The Exorcist later. Right. I was like, oh, that guy from Flash Gordon, that's awesome. And it wasn't until way later in life I was like, oh, he's he's this famous foreign film actor. Celebrated <laughs> foreign film actor, and yeah. This was on the downturn of his, his career, probably. That happens a lot, though. Like there was, there were definitely actors that I was introduced to through, you know, horror films or whatever. That this was like, you know, what they were doing towards the end of their career. But that's where I saw them first, and then to learn, learn later that they, you know, had been like big Western stars. I'll say this: I recently just completed the Criterion Bergman box set of his entire body of work, and I'll say that Max von Sydow's performance as Ming the Merciless measures up. I'd say it's better than like a third of his performances <laughs> in some of those. Maybe that's just a language barrier thing, but and maybe it's just because I love him as Ming the Merciless, but this guy is killing it. In fact, everybody, the, the whole cast in, in Flash Gordon is, is pretty astounding. I, I agree. I think you can make some arguments for some people not being as good as others. So Flash and and Dale and Zarkov are brought into Ming's court and all these other members of all the planets that are around there are giving offerings to Ming. And, you know, we should talk about this because this sets up the world. Basically, the world is that Ming rules all these other planets and all these other regions, which have all these other interesting type of aliens. Like we get the Hawk people who are run by Voltan who's played by the amazing Brian Blessed. We get the Arboreans, who are sort of all dressed like Peter Pan or Robin Hood. That's basically their look. (laughs) And they are led by one of my favorite actors of all time, Timothy Dalton, as the Baron, or Baron, and he's sort of a... Prince Baron. Prince Baron. He's a petulant, like, Errol Flynn-y type of guy. There's a bunch of other types of aliens or and whatnot. There's these lizard men that are like lizards with like eyes in their mouths. They're pretty cool. I always enjoyed that design. But the first people paying tribute are, I don't know, they seem to be African-American or African type of uh, aliens or something. And the guy who's trying to pay tribute doesn't have anything to give Ming because Ming's fucked up their planet so much that they don't have anything. And then Ming tells him to fall on his sword and the guy instead tries to kill Ming and Ming stabs him to death with his own sword. So we get established just what a giant asshole Ming is. (laughs) And then Ming gets his eyes on Dale because Dale's a hot number and he he has this magic ring that he uses on her and it basically like gets her all hot and heavy and like this is the first real indication of how horny this movie is it's so horny the most horny <laughs> space film <laughs> this is the horniest film even as like a kid i knew like 
I, I don't, you know, of course I didn't understand everything, but I knew like this was questionable. Right. Like I was like, am I going to get in trouble for watching this type thing? Or, you know, <laughs> or I didn't feel like not in trouble, but I was like, I definitely like didn't want to watch it with my parents right, or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like those are the type of feelings that are coming up. And that's what I remember most about this. It looked really cool. And then it was like kind of naughty, yeah. you know, like, but yeah, this is, this is such a horny film and she's horny like, and <laughs> edges on sadomasochism. Yeah. There's there's so yeah. much whipping and <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not as horny as Barbarella, but you could definitely have a good double feature here. It's like yes. a, these films fit together pretty well. Sexy space opera kind of thing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Like if you're if you're a bit of a perv, Flash Gordon is the movie for you. Because <laughs> he's sort of making her writhe in ecstasy with his magic ring. And then he's like, ooh, she'll be good for my pleasure or whatever. <laughs> and then that pisses off Flash because Flash has just started to make time with Dale. and They've been really hitting mm -hmm. it off. And so Flash basically starts a fight with all of uh, Ming's minions and this football game type of battle ensues. When Ming is getting all hot and bothered, just have to mention that the great Peter Wingard, who plays his henchman Clytus, yes. is standing next to him. And as they're sitting there sort of checking out Dale's undulations, Clytus says, she even rivals your daughter. And he's like, mm-hmm. I know. <laughs> There's so much like, ooh, there. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for not forgetting that line, yeah. Troy. No, it, it's yeah. really important. It's so... Ugh. In really poor taste. And yeah, Ming's daughter is named Aura, and she's played by a uh, Italian actress, Ornella Muti. And she's pretty gorgeous, I must say. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. She walks in wearing just like a piece of cloth and and sequences and sparkles hanging over her must be like a g-string and like nothing else except a headdress. Yeah, she's walking around with her her pet Fellini, kind of like a sh like a showgirl or yeah. something, right? Yeah, exactly. She looks like something out of a Frank Frazetta drawing or something like that. Sort of that like sword and sorcery sex pot kind of thing in that outfit. But yeah, she's or is hot through this whole movie. She's, she's so gorgeous. Smoking. Yeah. And she immediately has the hots for Flash too, and that's gonna sort of carry through. Yeah. This scene sets up how everybody's just wants to fuck each other. Yeah. Like, <laughs> as soon as all these characters are introduced to each other, all of them just want to mm -hmm. fuck each other. It's and they are pretty blatant about it. Yes. I feel bad for Zarkov. He doesn't totally get anybody to like Mac on it. He should be macking on that general, that sort of uh striking looking woman general they should have had some kind of fling they have a scene together which i'd say that's where you get your sort of sadomasochism right. they, they have a scene later that could be interpreted in a many different ways. right where she's draining all the information yes. out of his mind so anyway this all devolves into a big football fight where there just happens to be these conveniently made sort of football style objects and Flash is throwing them at people and knocking them down and he's tackling them and doing all sorts of fancy footwork to fight off the minions of Ming. And uh, Voltan's throwing in his help here and there by hitting people over the head with his club. So we sort of see right away, mm, Voltan could be an ally and he's, you know, one of the Hawkmen. And the Hawkmen are ridiculous looking in the best possible way. They're literally guys in like trusses and giant wings that don't really work and are just sort of <laughs> these props. Yeah, they're wearing like cod pieces with 
giant metal wing, like they look like hundred pound wings on their back that there's no way these that would lift anyone up into the air no and and in the in the trivia um the actors who were playing the hawkman they couldn't sit down oh i'm sure because the cost the costumes <laughs> right. would hurt their backs melody anderson had was quoted as saying they could never sit down because when they did the wings would dig into their backs when we had a rest period you'd see all these guys lying on their stomachs with wings like they were ready to take off it was a very funny sight <laughs> According to Brian Blessed, he had to sit on a perch. That makes sense. <laughs> oh, God. Can we just take a moment, though, to mention how amazing these costumes are? Yeah, they're oh, incredible. Oh, my God. Even in the background characters. Like, I was I was actually pausing it this time I was looking at it and just looking at the extras, and their costumes are incredible. It's amazing. The detail that is in, especially in Ming's robes. By the way, I counted them. I counted at least five costume changes for Ming. Flash is at least four. He has a bunch of costume yeah. changes. They all do. They have tons of costume changes. They're all just stunning. And I remember even as a kid, like, you know, wow, this, these guys look amazing. They're so shiny. Yeah. There's lots of sequence, lots of glitter, lots of spandex, lots of colors. It's the polar opposite of Star Wars, which is all grubby used future yeah. type of thing. This is all like high fashion future. It's literally an opera. This just looks with the music and these costumes and the set pieces. It's it is a true space opera. So Flash gets knocked out by a ball that Zarkov throws at him and they decide that they're going to execute Flash. So we get this whole sequence where like Flash is being held in like this prison room with this giant spiky helmet on. And Dale goes to him and says her goodbyes and they talk about how they're really in love and they hope they this all turns out to be a dream so that they can hook up after they wake up. And then we get Flash executed in a gas chamber. And I remember when I saw this as a kid, this weirded me out. I was like, this is mm -hmm. disturbing. You know, they're all gathered to watch him get gassed. And he's got these leather underpants on, yeah. which are kind of, you know, making me feel funny. Yeah, and I think it's because this is, I mean something that you just know is like that's a way that humans are executed so that's what's so creepy about it is because you're actually even though you probably hadn't seen you know that with a, a human before but you have some sort of awareness yeah. that that's like a real way that someone is executed yeah you know what i mean so you're like you're seeing it and it's it's weird and the yeah that the underpants that he has has on I was totally thinking in the way it is with his hair, and I kind of mentioned it when we were watching it earlier, uh, because Richard O'Brien had come up in the credits at the beginning. I was like, wow, this really has a lot of Rocky Horror yeah. also. Like, and I, I hadn't, and I've seen this movie quite a bit. I've seen Rocky Horror a bunch of times, and I don't know, it just never connected until today, like when we're on this viewing. But I was like, he looks like Rocky. I, I thought that having Richard O'Brien cast in this was sort of a, a reference to that like it was intentional i could be wrong but i bet the venn diagram between rocky horror fans and flash gordon fans is pretty overlapping i was thinking about this today this wasn't really a midnight movie though it didn't play it didn't seem to get that kind of play that some of the other uh you know midnight movies were like pink floyd's the wall rocky horror akira i don't remember flash gordon being one of those and it should have been was it I'm sure it's been shown at midnight with cool underground screenings, but yeah, not really. It seems like that could have been its other 
life and it, and it even missed out on that. Yeah. So Flash is executed, but luckily he's not really executed because Princess Aura has been hooking up with the surgeon who handles the executions <laughs> and she's convinced him to just shoot up Flash with some kind of chemical that he can survive the gas and then she revives him. So then they go on the run and flee to the kingdom of Arborea so she can uh, leave Flash safe with her other boyfriend, Prince Baron. So, like, Aura's really playing the field here. She's seducing a lot of men and getting them to do what she wants. So she's kind of a fun character in that way where it just everybody's so hot for her that they'll do whatever she says, like, risk their lives to help her. This is sort of the first of our, and this is the structure of this film because it's based on these serials. This is the first of our cliffhangers. Yeah. In, and essentially the whole film is just going to be continuing to to ride on these. But... This would be my one of my few nitpicks about this film is these cliffhangers, the way they're set up, they, he gets out of them in the laziest of ways. And there's a lot of them like this. Yes. Where So first we have this, oh, my God, he's going to be executed. How the hell is he going to get out of this? And you see him actually like you see his hand go limp after the, you know, they gas the chamber. And then basically he got out of it because it just didn't work. No, he got out of it because the doctor injected him with something that would make it so that he could survive it but appear right. dead. And then he gave him, gave him another injection afterwards that revived him. It's like Romeo and Juliet where like they drink the poison but then they have to drink the antidote, right? Sort of, yeah. <laughs> sort of. Just like, no? Just like, no? yes. Yeah, so it's like he, he was killed but he wasn't really killed. Yeah. That's all I'm saying is, is there's going to be a few of these in this movie where – He's like, oh, no, they're going to submerge him in the swamp. But then somebody just lets him out. But at this point, like all of our main characters are sort of broken up. Like Zarkov is being brainwashed by Clytus, as we said before. He's set on this table and this like laser device is going into his brain and sucking out all the memories from him so that they can use him, I don't know, as a blank slate. The things that we see of Zarkov's memories has always kind of baffled me a little bit because they're sort of trying to go through his life. Like we're seeing him and Munson really having a good time. And then we go back and at one point, like there's a thing with him and a woman and the woman gets thrown into the pool and then she's like dead. Did you, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that was his wife. Right. So what he, his wife got, it looks like she got thrown into a pool at a party and then died or something. I didn't know that she got thrown in the pool, but I, I definitely saw that she drowned. I mean, that was like that an accident, some kind of accident at a party right. and mm -hmm. she died. There's a funeral. Yep. Uh, but and then you just start going deeper and deeper and find out how much horror this guy has lived through. Right. Like when he was a kid, the Holocaust happened and we see his dad. He's a survivor. It's pretty heavy for a goofy movie. <laughs> and then this is the scene I was mentioning before. So you have Agent, what's her, what's her name? So the head of like Ming's military. Kaya? Kaya. She's like the G.I. Joe the Baroness. So right. she's got this Russian accent. Yeah. And um, she's she's dressed in black latex and she's got this giant, humongous laser thing pointed at Zarkov and she's just draining his memory. And it, it has an element of this sort of SM just because he's like strapped down to this table. He's very exposed and she's using this this weapon on him. But she's also 
kind of a um, sexualized character. She seems like a dominatrix. Yes, yes. exactly. And the uh, the the thing that's draining his mind is very James Bond, Goldfinger, the thing where he's on the table and the laser is coming to cut off his balls. So it's kind of two things, those two things. But she's very dominatrixy. Yes. Seeing this as a kid, you're right. Like as we're going through this, his memories, we're seeing like he's a Holocaust survivor and they're making jokes about it yeah. too. Like at one point, Clyda says, as they see Hitler come up on screen, he's like, mm, oh, that yeah. man looks promising. And he had potential or something. He had potential. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a pretty disturbing scene in a comic book movie. But again, it's kind of the heart and soul of Flash Gordon that they go there. Yeah. So another thing that happens next is super horny because <laughs> Flash and uh, Ara are flying to Arborea in a spaceship. And Ara explains to Flash, on Mongo, you can communicate with your mind. And Flash is like, hey, can I put in a call to Dale? So he like mind calls Dale. And like Dale is like being prepared to be Ming's wife so she's in this like sexy pillow chamber with like these women and like flash is communicating with her but meanwhile like aura is like writhing on him and he's like this chick is really turning me on they're having like a telepathic threesome essentially yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and dale is, totally. is when we cut to dale yeah she's basically in the first tier of being ming's wife which is his concubine essentially she's like being mm -hmm. prepared yeah. Yeah. With, with his harem, literally his harem of women that he has in this giant mattress room. The room looks really comfortable. I'm sorry. I have to say like that just looks like so just lounge for days. It looks wonderful. All of these sets are sexy. And in the room, they've got like this green sex juice that gets you like, <laughs> it's almost like a space roofie or whatever. It like spaces you out so that, what do they say? Like once you get into bed with Ming, it's like, it's you won't mind. It's not so bad. Or, yeah, you won't mind or it's not yeah. so bad. And then she says, she said, oh, well, I forget. And they're like, no, but it won't, the memories won't be so you, bad you or something or like something. that. Or, or, yeah. you, or you won't want to forget or something along the lines of that. Yeah. It'll be more tolerable or something like that. If this room was a bar in Hollywood, there would be like a line around the block to get into this place. <laughs> yeah. It's so yes. colorful and shiny and sexy in this room with curtains everywhere. They're literally, it's like this. 15 foot diameter mattress that they're lounging on there was not in hollywood troy but there was i don't know if it's still a thing but like in the mid 2000s there was like a hot nightclub um in miami beach called bed <laughs> mm. yeah it was and you could like you could eat like you could get like the trays and like they bring food or whatever and lay on bed and like drink oh, and just hang out. Amazing. But it was like it was it was I just totally forgot about that until now. I was like, yeah, someone kind of did that. It wasn't one giant bed. It was like individual beds. Somebody needs to make Ming's harem as a bar. <laughs> yeah. Flash and uh, Aura get to Arborea, which is like a tree planet. It's sort of like the Ewoks where they live up in the trees. But down below, everything is like swamp. And we get this really cool scene, which really affected me as a kid, where we're watching this ceremony where like this young guy is sticking his hands into this big stump. And in the stump, there's like this scorpion type of monster like creature that'll like stab you with its tail if it gets too close. And of course, the poor guy puts his hand in, gets stabbed by the scorpion and he brings out his hand 
and he's like, just kill me. Don't let the poison take me. It's like the poison's so horrible that you'd just rather die right then than have to deal with it. And so Prince Baron stabs the guy. Because it makes you insane. And would you say that this has an element of, of some kind of sexuality too with these men sticking their hands in these orifices into this? Yeah, it's like glory holes. Yeah, and so it's, it's <laughs> I mean, the whole movie's like this. So it's, as a kid, you're always on edge. You're always a little weirded out by this, but you're on board. And this this place is, Aboria looks amazing. The sets in here are incredible. Yeah. And I remember when I was a kid, there were like two places on a rainy day. If I went out and played in the mud, it would be, I'd pretend I was either on Dagobah or Aboria. But yeah, this this uh, place is pretty creepy. And there it's it's also just got this weird feeling of this cultish men's club, like they're chanting and stamping their spears on the ground and while dressed like Robin Hood. And then Aura Aura just sort of swings out from a behind a tree and she's in this hot pink spandex outfit. Her outfit is definitely in stark contrast to everybody else's yes. outfit in this. And then Timothy Dalton just like throws himself all over her. Yeah. Well, she says when they, but her line is when uh, she shows up there and all this manly ritualistic weirdness is going on. She's like, Ooh, I love an initiation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So her whole thing is basically she wants Baron to keep her other boy toy safe from her dad. So we're getting this like really <laughs> weird dynamic here. And of course, Timothy Dalton as the Baron is not having it. He's doing a great sort of typical Timothy Dalton petulant performance, which is what I love about him. Just sort of angry and all of his words are really clipped. He's kind of my favorite character in the movie in a way. And I even as a kid, I sort of like related to Baron. Like I was kind of like, I kind of want to be Baron because I don't know. I was sort of like an angry kid or something. I don't know. I related to him <laughs> for whatever reason. And he's not having it. Like he doesn't want to fucking hold on to this guy while she's running around back to her dad. It sets up this adversarial relationship between Flash and Baron. I just love Timothy Dalton. And he's, he's I mean, he's a handsome older man, but he's so handsome here as young Timothy Dalton. And yeah, it's just, he's a delight. He's always like, he's just always such a good presence. Like whatever he's doing, he's just, he's just great. Yeah. He's, he's playing a perfect Robin hood. So that sets up a, a weird dynamic with them. And immediately uh, Prince Barons, as soon as Aura leaves, he throws flash in the swamp in a cage that's like submerged halfway underwater. And there's like a poor like lizard man in there with him. And there's like <laughs> one guy who's like, uh, it's like a hawk man. And he's like, I can't, yep. I can't stay up any longer flash. <laughs> he's got those metal wings on his back. I know. Poor guy. And this is where we're getting a lot of Sam J. Jones's real voice in these scenes. You can hear his real voice. But as, as you mentioned, right. He's, he's just a little bit more, He's trying to be more macho and less of a, a goodie. The actual voice does sound like a perfect match for his, yeah. like his vocal cords. It just sounds like him, just played differently. I do enjoy these scenes. I love these sets. I always love swampy sort of places and tree houses and stuff. So it's a lot of fun. There's kind of this back and forth and the Prince Baron's kind of playing a game with Flash here because they have these laws that are set up, like Ming's laws, they can never break Ming's laws. So he can't just kill Flash. He has to 
kind of go through these motions of keeping him as a prisoner and then wait for Flash to fuck up so he can kill him. He actually sends Richard O'Brien out to like set up a fake escape. Yeah. Again, this is one of those cliffhangers that was just like, eh, really? That's not the cliffhanger, though. The cliffhanger is that they get Flash to take part in this stump ceremony thing where he's got to now Flash has got to. St- the orifices. Flash has now got to stick his hand in the glory hole and the penis creatures <laughs> going to stab at him. <laughs> Which is a cool scene. It is. This a cool scene's scene. really cool. I like this one. It's actually pretty suspenseful. Yes. So they're both sticking their hands in these orifices in the in the, the magic wood or I forget what they call it. But what it gets kind of redundant is then like so Flash like psychs out Baron and pretends he gets stabbed by the penis creature. It's like so he's like, kill me, Baron. I can't stand the madness. And the Baron goes to kill him. But then he like pushes the Baron. Then he goes running off into the swamp, falls into this quicksand. And then he falls into this other creature. That's like this bladder creature that has claws that comes up from the ground and is like basically tearing itself apart with its claws and getting goo everywhere and then the hawkmen show up and save flash because the hawkmen have an issue with the the arboreans so that's how he gets out of that situation but yeah it gets kind of redundant it's just kind of like running around this planet set which i kind of again like i said i kind of loved as a kid i would pretend i was battling giant balloon monster in the mud when I was a kid. <laughs> That's a fun game. Yeah. So yeah, meanwhile, uh Zarkov and Dale have managed to escape and on a like flying jet cycle thing. And Dale's like, so how did you hold on to your memories or whatever? And Zarkov is like, I just remembered all these equations and formulas, even songs from the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, so that's how he, he psyched himself out to not lose his mind, is reciting Beatles lyrics. But they all meet up at the Hawkman City, Sky City. And what we get here is probably my, I, th- I feel like this is kind of like, in a way, the climax of the movie. Because Baron and Flash have to fight on this platform this shifting platform that's like just over like a hole in the sky and like you can just see weird inky sky beneath it because they're like millions of miles above the nearest planet or whatever so they're having this like fight with whips while all these like spikes are coming out from this platform and stuff you can tell that the spikes are really kind of rubber or whatever but i don't know as a kid i thought this was really exciting and fun i loved this fight yeah, this set is is totally cool. This thing's moving around because Voltan's got this remote control. He's just like making it turn and tip and tilt and making the spikes come up. And he's just laughing at them the whole time that they're trying to fight each other. Now, this scene is like, it's it's great. I mean, it kind of reminds me of, um, what is that in Game of Thrones? Remember? Right, the moon door. The moon door. Yeah, it just kind of reminded me of that. I mean, obviously the stakes are higher here because we've got the thing that can actually tilt and and the spikes popping up and down and everything. But there was um, from from Sam J. Jones was saying when they were shooting this particular scene, I guess they kept um, getting silver paint on them. I noticed that. I saw it. There was a shot where they looked like they were covered in spray paint for a second. Right. 
And so they'd have to take extra time between takes to they're having to wipe it off their bodies because I guess the disc or whatever was probably freshly painted. <laughs> yeah, there was really only one angle where you can clearly see they're just like covered in spray paint. And it was so obviously from that platform. But then the cut right after that, they're totally clean. So I was wondering about that. But the end result is that Flash beats Baron. But Baron is going to fall off the platform and he's hanging on to one of the spikes. But because Flash is a good guy, he offers Baron his hand. And so now the two enemies are going to be united. But unfortunately, our buddy uh, Clytus shows up and we haven't really talked much about Clytus. He's the sort of right hand man to Ming. He's in charge of Ming's secret police or whatever. And he's been doing all the interrogations and stuff. He's totally horny for Aura. Yeah. She went back to Ming at one point and they were torturing her because Clytus knew that she had snuck Flash out of there. And like Aura's like lying on this like table that's got these like hands grabbing her and he's like whipping her back and stuff. Well, no, isn't... Uh, Kaya. Kaya is whipping her. Clytus is standing there sort of giving instructions, trying to get the information out of her. Kaya's having a blast as this dominatrix who's just whipping her. And then... Yes. And then at one point, Aura says, bring me my father, tell him. And then they open up this door and... Ming's just been standing there watching the whole thing from behind a door. He's like eating peanuts or something. <laughs> he's <Yeah>. snacking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just, just being a total creep. Yeah. And, and he's like, no, continue. <laughs> and Kaya's like, I, I, this is another thing I distinctly remember from being a kid and seeing this is because her back looks so gross. Like it's, it's, it's good. Because she's been whipped. Yeah. Oh, it's in and continuity later because we see her back later and it's fine. Yeah. You wouldn't have that wouldn't have just healed, but whatever. It's cool. Yeah. It's just gross. And at one point, Clytus says, uh, I'm going to bring out the boar worms on right. you. And yeah. That, that yeah. freaked me out as a kid. Just whatever the boar worms were, those those must be really bad. My worst nightmare. It's a bummer. We never see the boar worms, though. And like yeah. in my mind, we did see them because I think I thought of them as those things that crawled into Chekhov's ear in yeah. Star Trek 2. And Wrath of Khan. Yeah. Yes. That's that's where I always go when I hear stuff like this. I'm like, that's that came out like two years later but no i'm sure the boar worms maybe they did shoot a scene and it, they looked like little penises like the uh the wood beast <laughs> probably they like broke off of the wood beast like you know because in in um in wrath of Khan, isn't that like thing that goes in the ear it's like comes off of yep. like a bigger thing it comes off of another thing yeah but that by the way is just like such a kinder trauma as like i think the boar worms had we seen them would have been the same thing oh one of the biggest kinder traumas, you're right. Yeah. But yeah, let's spend a, a minute on Clytus, uh, who is played by Peter Wingard. Peter Wingard was, I think he he was a British actor who played a famous uh, British on a spy program or something. Uh -huh. So he was he was kind of a a suave Roger Moorish type. Yeah. This is a bit of trivia about pa uh, Peter Wingard. There was a time when a lot of actors would uh, have to make an album. Right. And, uh, you know, they would they would just sing like hits of that era or something just to have something else to kind of market their presence with and their their agents and publicity. People would say, yeah, you got to record an album. And they told Peter Wingard to do this. Uh, this is before way before Flash. I think this is in the 70s. 
but he took it to heart and really tried to go all out with his album. <laughs> so I've played it for Seb. He came up with this concept album where he's playing this suave gentleman who's pouring a drink and inviting you into his apartment. And there's this whole sort of spoken word part. And then there's a bunch of songs about sex and frolicking, but there's the, the most famous one on there is a song called Rape. Yeah. Ugh. Wow. And it's he starts talking about rape with this jazzy music, like he's got this groovy beat behind him and then doubles down on how, how wrong this is by going through every conceivable stereotype and playing all these stereotype ethnic characters while talking about rape. Yeah, it's really, Whoa. really shocking and unfortunate. And of course, this was never released immediately. They, they were like, no way are we pulling this, are we putting this out? But it's got album artwork and everything. You can, you can dig hard on the internet and find it. Wow. That's Peter Wingard who plays Clytus. <laughs> well, he gets what's coming to him because Clytus shows up and uh, Flash and Baron team up to basically throw him onto the platform. And Clytus gets stabbed with the spikes coming out of the platform. And then he basically like melts. And this is something that we've seen from a lot of the Ming characters is when they die, they melt like Kaya dies later and she turns into like black goo and like Clytus just turns into this goo and like his eyeballs just kind pop of out. like pop out out of his mask. It's really kind of gross. Yep. Yeah, that scene was definitely disturbing. Yes. This just brings us into our big climax. We're going to get a lot of flying around and a lot of shooting. Basically, Flash has got to convince Voltan and the Hawkmen to join him to attack Mongo because Ming has taken Dale hostage again and uh, Zarkov left Flash to die, blown up the flying city thinking that he's going to kill Flash. But like conveniently, Flash just falls down this like ramp into a flying cycle and escapes. So Ming didn't really do that good of a job <laughs> making sure that Flash was going to die. And like before he blew up the city, Ming was like, you could join me. I'll give you Earth to take over. He's offering to give him Earth to rule over as an evil warlord but Flash isn't having it. And all this time, there's like a ticking clock, like Earth is going to be destroyed if they don't stop Ming at a certain point. There literally is a, a ticking clock. Was Ming offering Earth, though? I thought he was offering another planet. Yeah, it's Earth. He offered that, that Flash could rule Earth, and then, yeah, Flash okay. says, but are you going to stop all the destruction? He's like, no, but yeah, Earth isn't going to be the way you remember it. Okay. It'll just be easy for you to control because everybody's going to be so traumatized. Yeah. And <laughs> from all the destruction that I've uh, spun on it, that uh, it'll be really easy for you to control it and be king. Okay. Like it'll be like Mad Max, only Flash Gordon gets to be king because everybody's yeah. so fucked up and the whole place is destroyed. I have to say Max von Sydow's delivery in this speech is... Again, like this guy, he just kills it. Like this is, again, <laughs> rivals his Bergman performances. He knows how to play a villain. He is yeah. an awesome villain. And this sort of would set a template for him in the later years of his career. Most of his roles after this are villain roles in one way or another. 
you know, he ends up being the villain in like Minority Report, all sorts of movies. Yeah. He ends up playing um, Blofeld in the Sean Connery, not official James Bond, never say never again. So it's like he, he keeps showing up as a villain after this. He really kind of found his villain groove here in Flash Gordon. And he's great at it. So, yeah, Flash is leading the Hawkmen to attack Mingo City. And, you know, there's this ticking clock that the Earth is going to be destroyed at this specific time. This ticking clock started because Zarkov randomly just said yes. it. And he, they're <laughs> yes. like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, this is when the Earth is going to be destroyed to the second on some digital watch or something. It's the most arbitrary countdown, I think, in <laughs> yeah. any movie ever, because it was literally just decided by a guy out of right. pure speculation. <laughs> he based it on nothing. He just set a ticker and said, this is when the Earth he, will It's be like done. he set his alarm clock. It literally right. looks like a digital alarm clock from 1980. And it's like, <laughs> this is the doomsday countdown. We better hurry. Based on absolutely nothing. Well, based on, in his mind, that he was right about Earth getting attacked. That's right. But he didn't even like lick his finger and stick it up into the wind or anything. He just sort of set this clock. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because he just <laughs> knows, Troy. He knows. Anyway, so we're going down. The minutes are counting down on Zarkov's clock. And then they've dispatched War Rocket Ajax during Ming's having his beginning his ceremony. Wedding ceremony. His wedding the ceremony. The big wedding between Dale and Ming is now going to happen. So that's happening the war rocket Ajax is being launched and the countdown of Earth is going on. So we've got three major plates in the air for our climax here, which doesn't really help that much. I mean, I think that this climax is fine, but it's kind of just a lot of running around and come on you. But you get this incredible minor keyed wedding theme from Queen happening. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. All the wedding stuff is awesome. Like, I love all of that yeah. stuff. I'm totally there for the wedding stuff. All the other stuff is fine. Like, I remember as a kid, you know, at one point, all the Hawkmen are, like, lined up in a formation. And uh, Voltan is sending them down in waves going, dive! And so they'll, <laughs> they dive at the rocket. They all sort of convene at the rocket and where they're fighting on the rocket because in this world there's like air and atmosphere and it's you know it yeah. becomes just sort of like a pirate ship battle but on a rocket no you're you're right there's just a lot of running around but again most of the backbone of this movie is style yeah and these cuts and all these set pieces and these scenes that are happening now have so much fucking style in them. They definitely do. By the way, War Rocket Ajax looks like this giant hornet. It's this yeah. this huge ship that's got this like bee head with a stinger pointing out of it. And you've got the Hawkman running around it. There's all kinds of crazy Dutch angles like in the Batman TV show yeah. constantly. And you've got this incredible wedding scene going on with all these costumes everywhere. Two different great scores by Queen happening now. There's this other major theme happening with the battle on the war rocket with these heavy drums. And actually another more vocals, uh, Freddie Mercury vocals happening over this battle, just singing about Flash and how awesome he is. He's going to save us. He's a miracle. Mm -hmm. yeah. Save all of us. The music totally elevates it far beyond its sort of modest action ambitions. The action itself is just 
1970s TV level. It's like something you'd see in the Incredible Hulk or something. It's really nothing special at all. But the music is so good. It's people kind of tripping and falling down. But yeah, if you didn't have this Queen score, it would be kind of abysmal. But the Queen score elevates it to this exciting, trippy, psychedelic other, you know, you've got, again, these skies happening in the background. It's really the score that's that's helping this thing. It's all about the score. Like, it's yeah. just, I mean, it's such a, like, you're just pumped. It's just such an anthem. And it's just, I mean, it's... It's kind of a music video in yeah. a way. It's really, at this point, you do have lyrics happening. So you're listening to a song and you're just watching people running around in these silly costumes, shooting laser beams at each other. And it's, it's awesome, though. I do think the Hawkman compositing gets kind of rough. You know, they clearly just look like a bunch of guys being held up on wires, just kind of floating there while their wings are sort of lacklusterly <laughs> going up and down. I would never say they actually flap. No. They just lazily move up and down a little bit i mean look you know we got to be honest about the some of the shortcomings here there (laughs) and you know even at the time this would not have been considered like state-of-the-art special effects like it doesn't even seem like they probably used the computer technology that lucas was using to get the smooth spaceship movements these look like they're going old school. They didn't use motion control. This is just, they move from screen left to screen right, probably on little wheels. Or sort of towards the camera, like they're on wires and stuff. The way they did it back in the day with the old serials. Like if you actually yeah. watch the old serials, it looks pretty much the same. Yeah, It's just they're in black and white rather than this crazy eye-popping color. And you mentioned, again, like Star Wars is a big part of this conversation just because it had changed so much of how people were looking at space opera, science fiction, everything. You got to remember like Empire Strikes Back was playing side by side to this film. It came out within weeks of each other. So you have the spectacular, even like up the ante from Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back effects playing alongside this stuff with people on wires and these sort of ships that just stay stationary in space and don't move. I think that's why it didn't do well. Oh, it totally didn't do well. Yeah. I agree. It didn't stand a chance to like if if you're going to go see a movie and Empire Strikes Back is in the theater, like what are you going to choose? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you get that that awesome asteroid scene with the Millennium Falcon flying through these asteroids or you have Hawkmen with plastic wings <laughs> on wires with a ship that looks like a big bumblebee yeah. <laughs> stay, it's just staying stationary against a lava lamp. But you've got Queen. But you have Queen. That's, That's right. right. That's just, Empire does not have Queen. <laughs> Damn straight it does not. So Flash flies the war rocket Ajax right into the palace where Ming and Dale are getting married and impales Ming through the midsection with the stinger of the ship. But before that happens, we get some nice vows between Ming and Dale. What were they, Jen? Like They were vows that you wanted to have when we renew ours. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, these are, these are great. You promised to let me use you or something along the line. Until the time comes when I've tired of you. Yeah. And I throw you <laughs> yeah. out into space. Not throw you out into space. Until the time, such time has come when you're bored. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do. 
<laughs> so yeah, Flash uh, smashes in with War Rocket Ajax and impales Ming, but Ming isn't quite dead. He sort of pulls himself off of the giant spear, and he's, we see that Ming has got green blood. We've seen that some of the other alien characters have other colors of blood. And so Flash gets this sword. And for some reason, I was always really taken with this sword when I was a kid, because when you would... What's well, in the poster? Yeah, you saw it in the poster. And it's really weird because it's got like, it looks like a sword that has been swung into like an orange slice or something like there's like, a, it looks like an orange slice is on the end of the sword. And I don't know if that's like a real kind of sword or if it was just a design. It's a design that little thing matches ming's costume he's got the same emblem on his chest Ah, okay i think he does yeah on on one of his many costume changes that he had it seems like it might not be totally efficient because that thing looks like it might hurt the action of the blade but who am i to criticize ming's swords so flash threatens ming with the sword and then ming tries to use his magic ring on flash but ming's power is so diminished that it doesn't work and so Ming disintegrates himself. Is that what happens? It's a little unclear what happens here. I think he just runs out of his power's gone. And so he disappears. The ring sort of turns on him and dis disintegrates him or something. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Sure. We'll go sure. with that. That's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. What, nobody's read the novelization or anything where it goes into <laughs> agonizing detail about how Ming is vaporized? There is a novelization. I'm sure there is. I'm surprised you haven't read it. Not yet. <laughs> I actually would read it. I know you would. Are you sure? That would be so weird of a read because you're getting nothing that this movie <laughs> is delivering. You know what I mean? Like, I can't imagine the book can in any way replicate the experience of this movie as the experience of this movie is all visual. I'm sure you get some great backstory as to his football years. Totally. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, this is basically the end of the movie. They magically have stopped the arbitrary destruction of Earth just by killing Ming. Not sure how that worked either, but it did. And we get a really Star Wars inspired sort of ceremony where they're all standing around in the. But this is all seconds, seconds before the ticking uh, Zarkov's clock almost ran out down to the last five seconds. Does just by killing Ming stop all of the assault on Earth or yes. whatever? Yes. But the, it doesn't. No, but they just. Uh, but Zarkov's clock was was this thing they really cared about. Not Earth. Zarkov's arbitrary <laughs> alarm clock. Well, because they were hoping for sequels, they don't even really get to go back to Earth. They're all just kind of hanging out there, basking in the glory, and everybody's getting like new titles, like Baron gets to be the ruler of the war of the realm, and Voltan gets to be the leader of the armies and stuff. And like Flash, Dale, and Zarkov are just like, well... I guess we should think about getting back to Earth and like Baron's like, well, you can stay here for as long as you want. And then Dale's like, well, but I'm a New York City girl. It's too quiet around here. <laughs> and it's like, OK, so what does that mean? I mean, I guess it means that like Zarkov's going to try yeah. to get them home at some point, but they're they're stuck there for now because they're clearly hoping for sequels that will never happen. But you're forgetting to mention, um, does this, doesn't this happen next where the Hawkmen spell out, thanks, Flash? <laughs> yes. Thanks, Flash. 
Yeah. That's that you can't leave that out. So the Hawkmen do some skywriting, yes. which is awesome. Yes. And what could be more touching than to see Hawkmen form thanks in the sky? I can't think of anything more touching. Uh, a gender reveal party? Where <laughs> <laughs> the Hawkmen reveal your reveal your gender. child's gender? That's a really good idea. I'm I'm interested. But it's not fully over because the final shot of the movie is Ming's ring on the ground and then a hand comes in and grabs it away and we hear Ming's evil laugh and then we get the text, the end, question mark? <laughs> yeah, that was always kind of dumb. Even as a kid, it was, it was <laughs> Yeah, just... even as a kid, you know, you're like... Uh... You don't need... You just don't need that. No. It would have been fine to just cut out of that. It's gonna be, we could have just ended it. Thanks, Flash. Yeah. But then those drums kick in and then Freddie Mercury starts screaming and it's all good. Yeah. You get another great uh, Queen song. That's right. It sends you out of the theater with a spring in your step, but it didn't really make a lot of money. Now, it might have been a little unfair to put this on tentpole trauma because the movie cost officially about $20 million. It went on to gross $27 million in the United States and Canada, but that's like all it made worldwide. And, okay. and a budget for, and they say the budget was really more closer to $27 million. So it was a complete failure. But more importantly, it was a failure because they were hoping to have a Star Wars-sized success here, and they mm -hmm. did not. They had a underperformer. And and critics hated this movie. That's actually not entirely true. Well, there's two famous ones. This is Pauline Kael liked it, mm -hmm. and Roger Ebert sort of understood it and gave it a modest review. Yeah. Had one of his famous, like, duked it out with, with Siskel, who also hated it, but... But gener uh, in general, uh, critics really came down hard on this. Well, and you can kind of see why, because it's so blatantly campy, and it was just kind of going against, I think, the general zeitgeist of the time. As you were just saying, like uh, the zeitgeist had totally changed, and this is why, like a lot of these movies that that you're going to talk about on your podcast, is Star Wars had totally changed the game, yeah, in in the mind's eye, in, in culturally. Uh, Star Wars had created the the new template for fantasy and science fiction that there was this element of realism that uh, was going to be approached and and special effects were no longer going to look like this. And Flash Gordon was going backwards. Yeah. Like this was trying to to go back to the look of those original Buster Crab cereals with these plasticky looking, literally like these things look like those, those toy state fair, the tilt-a-whirl carts and stuff. Like the ships look like that in this. They all look like fiberglass, shiny with painted like garish colors. So this was going in the opposite direction of where everybody else was headed. I think it was a, a bold, great move. And they were actually trying to make something that I think was more European. Yes. You know, and, and audiences were totally over that at this point. We'd already had enough of these, you know, the, the new wave films from France and, and the, the Fellini films that were kind of done 
at this point and they were trying to rekindle some of that magic uh but people were totally ready for jaws and star wars now yeah. so they wanted new spielberg realism there was a, a new type of character uh i think you know you needed your han solo now in all of these uh you couldn't have this goody goody two-dimensional right your heroes needed to be more cynical and more realistic in terms of like relatable as real people like yeah. flash is a cipher he's just like a a good guy you know like he's here to save the earth and he wears a shirt that says fucking flash on the front of it <laughs> Like, can you imagine if Luke Skywalker was out there and said this, like, with fiery letters that said Luke <laughs> when he was battling everybody with his sword? No. So, like, I can totally see why this film failed. Jen, do you have any thoughts as to why it failed or any additional thoughts? One, one was actually a quote from the director, just a, a, something to share. He, uh, Director Mike Hodges, this is also in the trivia, said he referred to the production problems that plagued the film once calling it the, quote, only improvised $27 million movie ever made. Wow. So <laughs> it sounds like, I mean, I don't even know, you know, what the intentions were for how maybe they wanted it to look. I mean, we got what we got, and it sounds like they were just working, just trying to get through it. I mean, from, from you know, there was just a lot of problems. So I think that that didn't help things. The intention, though, of having this be um, campy and uh, having a camp feel to it, having humor to it, you know, I just don't know where that was going to fit in with everything else that was out. I, I just, it, it's, it doesn't fit in. Um, and if it doesn't have success as like a, a midnight movie and get like a cult following, then, you know, what do you do? And I guess my other, my kind of thought or question is, at the time, I can only think of like the only other like, I mean, we're living in a time now where it's like all these comics are like that. That's what our like main multimillion dollar films are. You know, we've got all the Marvel and DC, all everything. Uh, what's interesting about that, Jen, is Thor Ragnarok actually was trying to, to do this. Yeah. It's one of the only films since Flash Gordon that looked directly at Flash Gordon and said, we're going to recreate and make a kind of an homage to it. In fact, um, Taika said, like he kind of prepped his crew and said, you know, we're going to watch Flash Gordon and, and do that. And you could tell like even in that initial teaser trailer, it was the one Marvel movie that tried to go back in that direction. Yeah, and I love Thor Ragnarok, by the way. I, I think it's awesome. I guess what I'm saying, though, is like we're living in a time now where those are the main films that are made and they have all the money behind them. During this time, as far as comics went, I'm only coming up with Superman that was happening at this time, right? There's nothing else. Yep. So again, it's like you have Superman and then Flash Gordon. You know, it's like, and and yeah. and, and not that, the effects in Superman are super great. You know, I mean, they were fine for the time. It's not like what you're talking about with what's going on with Star Wars and Empire. I don't know. It's just it, it's Superman's not campy. No. But you had uh, the Batman TV show, which was written by the same screenwriter. At that time, the Batman TV show was what comic book entertainment was. Like that was the approach because nobody took comic book IP seriously. You know, it was right. a joke because it came from a comic book. Superman was the first movie 
that tried to kind of take it seriously. And now you look back at Superman and it's kind of campy, you know, by right. our, our standards now. But back then, Superman the movie was really playing it straight. Yeah. So this was, and again, feeding into what Troy's saying, was moving backwards, backwards in the direction of the Batman TV show where it's like, oh, this is a comic book. It needs to be silly and fun. Right. And it's like, we didn't crack the code with comic book material until really like 2000. That's when people started to take it seriously. We got like the Spider-Man movies and the X-Men and stuff. And that's when they were like, oh, if you treat comic books like seriously and not like these big campy romps, people will actually want to watch the movies. And then it ballooned crazy out of control. And now we're all the way back around where we're getting movies like Thor Ragnarok, where they're going back to the campiness because there's fun to be had there. It was just the way comic book material was was handled then. It was like you had to play it for laughs, basically. You had to play it campy. Part of the problem, too, with Flash Gordon is that it's based on a, uh, a comic strip that was way too old for people to be fresh in people's minds. Yeah. Unlike something that, well, I guess Batman would have been old too, but no, but Batman had still been around. You could still get Batman still get comics, comics and stuff yeah. like Flash Gordon only existed. If he still existed in syndicated newspaper strips. And that was even like, that may not have been in your area, you know, depending on where you were. Yeah. Well, there was apparently a seventies animated show. There was. Yes. I don't think I've ever seen a clip of I, I saw it. Okay. It was unremarkable. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is that you, you take a property which is completely outdated. It, it's not fresh culturally in anybody's mind. It's, it's not something that is part of pop culture. And you try to reintroduce that with a silly, campy movie and say this is based on a comic book that you've never, or a comic strip that nobody's ever really read except your grandfather. It's hard to, to try to get people on board with something that they don't have a familiar character that they can say, oh, we, we know this is a comic book. We can accept that this is silly. Well, and, and then on top of that, Troy, to also, like, we don't really have a reference point and, like, the majority of the cast is not really that well known either. Like, yeah. there's not one, you know, like, Flash isn't somebody that, you know, you know from something else, like, that maybe yeah. that's going to get you in there because you're like, ooh, I like this guy. You know, it's like it's it's just too much, too many variables. The two fans that that heard Peter Wingard's album <laughs> showed up. <laughs> well, all right, I'm going to go drink some green sex juice and fire up more <laughs> Rocket Ajax and go stick my hand in a glory hole. And go watch Flesh Gordon. Flesh Gordon. <laughs> Good idea. That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, 
thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon.